If you can turn to Esther chapter 1, I have uh, sort of called this um, the hidden God who's in control, but maybe I should call it this series, um, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, um, since that's a lot of what is going on in Esther. Uh, it is mysterious to those um, who are in the events recorded in Esther. Um, we, of course, uh, have the rest of Scripture to let us know what's going on. So, anyway, Esther chapter 1, bear with me since this is uh, a little long. <clears throat> now, in the days of uh, Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces... In those days when King Harasuerus uh, sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic of pavement of uh, porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zathar, and Carcass the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admarthia, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and who sat in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus? Yeah, I was doing so well with that one. Ahasuerus, 
delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukin said, in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of, of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Hasherus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this was written for our instruction, in part that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would be able to see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. For we ask this in His name. Amen. It is a political season. And I'm not getting political in the sense of talking about uh, who you should vote or anything like that. But I'm getting political in the sense of the fact that it distresses us. I think most people uh, who are sitting and listening probably have a high degree of anxiety with regard to the election. Most of us probably feel that there is a sense in which no matter who wins, we lose. Politics, in many ways, ends up turning us off because politicians often seem to be corrupt and or incompetent. We will exempt Dave Bowen from both of those statements since we know him, or some of us do anyway. But one of the questions we're tempted to ask as we look at the political landscape that is not just national, but also state and local, where is God? And I think that was perhaps one of the questions that the people who lived through the events in Esther had. Where is God? Even though... 
we see that question is never asked in the book of Esther. Its very absence indicates something to us. So let's spend some time looking at a very unfamiliar book that I think is meant to help us in times like these. The big ideas for Esther 1, anyway, is that the rulers we see make us long for the one we don't. That's a little tricky. The rulers we see make us long for the one that we don't. Let's start with the context of the book of Esther. And my understanding of this is essentially the idea that God establishes wicked rulers in order to chastise. That's not a very pleasant starting place, I understand. The book of Esther is a very controversial book in a number of ways. Uh, There were some who wanted it excluded from the canon of Scripture. One of the problems with Esther is that there are multiple versions of Esther. If you have a Roman Catholic Bible or a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it, if you open it up, you would find additional passages to what we have here. And so here's part of what's going on. What we have in front of us, if you have your standard ordinary ESV or NASB or NIV, is that you have the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. The other versions that exist are in Greek. And so in, in part, they're translations, but there are also additions, probably to take away some of what they think is the problem of the second controversy with the book of Esther. The reason why some people wanted to eliminate it from the canon. And that is because the name of God is not found in our copy of the book of Esther. God is, from a human perspective, absent in Esther. Why is God hidden? Why does he seem to be absent? And I think we have to turn to Deuteronomy to see why God hides. And what we find in Deuteronomy, particularly in chapter 31, is that God hides from his sinful people. In verse 17, we we see this, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And so the context of Deuteronomy 31 is the apostasy of God's people, And he says that part of what he's then going to do is to turn his face away from them. It will be as if he is hidden from them and they from him. And judgment will come upon them. They will be forsaken for a time, but not absolutely. And so we see that Esther takes place within that process that unfolds in the life of of Israel. 
For we see that historically, this takes place after the Babylonian exile in the place of the Babylonian exile. Remember, Persia would eventually conquer Babylon. And so here, this takes place in the Persian capital, or one of the Persian capitals, as we'll see. When the Medes and the Perds conquered Babylon, Cyrus, who was the king, issued an edict in 538 that permitted the Jews to leave their Babylonian exile and to return back to Jerusalem and to to rebuild the temple. And so this takes place two kings later. Okay? And part of what is going on is that, one, there are Jews that did not follow the edict of Cyrus and remained in Babylon and Persia. Secondly, we see that they didn't really give all of their whatever they had to rebuilding the temple and the walls. And so we see God's people still struggling with obedience. For there are those who remained in the land of exile. They liked it there. They stayed there. They didn't return to the land that had been promised to them. And there are others who did return, but they decided to focus on their own personal kingdoms before they rebuilt the things for the community, for the worship of God. And so we see this at a time when it still seems that God's face is hidden from His people. That's part of the context of Esther. When Calvin, rather, let's not get to Calvin yet, but as our confession talks about, because of things like Romans 13, God does not simply establish the fact of government, but we see that God also establishes or raises up particular governors or kings. Okay, God, It's not just that God has ordained that there be government, and so we have the Tucson City Council, but God is also in control as to who is on the Tucson City Council and every other step along the way, all the way up to the President of the United States of America. We see this in Exodus 9, where Moses tells Pharaoh that God has raised him up for this purpose. God raised an evil, corrupt, oppressing Pharaoh into power for a reason. This was true as well when Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was Caesar. He was a wicked and corrupt emperor. And yet, Paul understood him to have been established. Not just that Rome was established, but that Nero himself had been established by God for a purpose. This is part of why Calvin says in many places, essentially this, that God judges wicked people through unjust kings or leaders. Part of what Calvin is getting at is that the unjust leader, the wicked leader or ruler, is intended to increase the misery 
of the people so that they will repent of the sins that brought them the unjust ruler in the first place. And so God uses means to bring us to repentance. And when there is wholesale rebellion by his people or by a nation, because they are under him as well, God brings unjust rulers. And so as we come to the book of Esther, we can look at it with two sets of eyes. And I don't think these are necessarily, um, this is not an, uh, a both and. We tend to look with it either or. We tend to look at it with the eyes of fear. Where is God? Why is God not doing anything? Uh, this is so dangerous. This is so bad. Uh, in other words, people look at Esther as a whole, and therefore they look at their world in general with the idea that they are under the mercy of the tyrant instead of under the mercy of God. The tyrant is what they see, and the tyrant is what they fear. This story is one that makes you wonder, where is God? It seems very similar to what we find in Exodus chapter 1 when they are enslaved in Egypt. And they're crying out, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? Except here, we don't even find them going that, doing that. They seem almost content with the fact that God seems invisible and hidden. But the question then becomes, as we go through this book, how will God's people survive? Because there will be a grave and imminent danger that is coming upon them. So we could look at life with the eyes of fear, or we could look with the eyes of faith. As we read this book and as we look at the landscape of our world, our, our, our own time, and, and believe that God is still at work, and that God will continue to preserve His people from the tyrant, even if we can't see or understand how. Isaiah 45, 15 says, Truly, you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. In other words, Isaiah here is affirming both God hides Himself and that God is the Savior. He's not saying, because you hide yourself, you're not the Savior. But that rather, you still save, even though we can't perceive you because you hide yourself. So we see that when people are wicked, God appears to hide, but He's not. Faith reads the book of Esther and sees not coincidences, and there are a lot of coincidences in the book of Esther. I prefer to call them God incidences because really it's God at work. Okay? Mysteriously and hiddenly. 
And so we see even in this beginning chapter with all that might terrify us because of the wickedness of the king, he is actually at work to position Esther just as he positioned Joseph and just as he positioned Moses to deliver their people from destruction at key moments, even though it didn't look like it at that time. When Joseph was carted off to Egypt, sold as a slave, Joseph wasn't thinking, I'm going to save Israel. That was the furthest thing from his mind. Like, How am I going to get home? When Moses' parents put him in the basket in the Nile, they weren't thinking, our son is going to be the salvation, humanly speaking, of, of Israel from Egypt. He's going to lead the Exodus. No, they're just saying, keep him alive because Egypt's trying to kill him. And so we see here a grave threat through a king. And while the people are afraid, God's already working for their salvation. So, when people are wicked, God appears to hide and sends wicked rulers to correct them. Secondly, let's just really get into sort of the, the meat of chapter 1 in a whirlwind sort of fashion. Wicked rulers lord it over people for their own glory. Part of what happens here in Esther is that it kind of comes across a little bit as satire. Because it repeatedly sort of reveals the folly of Persia and the Persian rulers. And so in a sense, it functions similarly to George Orwell's book, Animal Farm. It's not an allegory like Animal Farm was. But, you know, he's making fun of communist Russia through this allegory of, uh, you know, all the animals taking over the farm, getting rid of the czars. Okay? The author, the unknown author of Esther, keeps portraying the, the, the Persians in a way that pokes holes in their supposed glory. It's almost like the emperor's new clothes. Persia thinks it's great and powerful, but the author of, of Esther knows it's not. Okay? Ahasuerus, whose name I hope to never pronounce in the rest of this series, <laughs> is the Hebrew version of his name. And that in and of itself is one of these little pokes. Because it means, I will be silent and poor. What a great name for a king, huh? <laughs> Shut up and be poor. <laughs> what a great name for a king. And when we do uh, the historical research and compare um, the account here in Esther to what we find in Greek historians like uh, Herodotus, um, we find that it, this is most likely the king called it Greek, Xerxes. I will use his Greek name, Xerxes, because his Persian name is utterly unpronounceable. So, Xerxes, see his name, meant ruler of heroes. That's, now that's the name of a king. But he's really a fool. 
And so that's why they use this Hebrew name to speak of him. This takes place, as it says here in the text, in the third year of his reign, which would be 483 B.C. And um, we also see the same guy, Xerxes, showing up in Esther chapter 4, because he is the one that the opponents of the Jews in the promised land write to, to say, stop them from building the temple. So Xerxes is no friend of Israel. Okay. We see that the account starts by focusing on the great power of Persia. It talks about the geographical you know, scope of this kingdom, which was from India. Don't get too excited, Alex. Okay? Because uh, remember, the country we now call Pakistan used to be part of India. So it's referring most likely to Pakistan, what we would call Pakistan, but all the way from Pakistan or India to Ethiopia, Kush, what we now think of as North Sudan. And so uh, to this point in history, the Persian Empire was the largest ever. It would be eclipsed, of course, by the Roman Empire, uh, as well as the Greek Empire, but at that point, it was it. It was the biggest ever. And to try to make that point of how large it is, it doesn't settle for the 30 satraps that we see in, in uh, the book of Daniel, but it talks about provinces because that's a bigger number. To show you the, the greatness of Persia, 127 provinces. That would be like trying to count the United States by counties instead of states so that it's more impressive. Okay, That's what's going on here. He mentions, or maybe it's a she, we don't know. We don't know who wrote Esther. This play takes place in Susa, which is uh, also what we, the place we find in the book of Nehemiah, which is one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. Now, we have found it. Or should I say the French archaeologists found it. They've uh, excavated the citadel of Susa, and what they found there backs up what we read here. They found these large pavilions in the gardens, which would be where the banquets would take place. So we have some archaeological evidence that indicates um, at least the veracity of there's a place called Susa, that it was a capital of the Persian Empire, and that what takes place here could have taken place there. Okay? But what I want us to see that we need to see is that wicked rulers lavish the wealth of the people on themselves. Okay? That, in other words, that what we found in places like the USSR or in many African countries is, has been true historically. It's not just an aberration. Okay? If you look at the USSR, what happened is everyone was poor except the communist elite. Okay. Wait a minute. They had a 1%? Of course they did. Every nation does. And it's the ruling class. Just as the poorest African nations have rich people in power there, they suck up all the wealth like a sponge and they use it for themselves. 
And it's not just communists. It's not just dictators. We should be shocked when we know that some presidents have spent $70 million on vacations. Your tax dollars at work. Thank you, people of the United States of America. But we see this as well. In the first two years of Xerxes' reign, he put down uprisings in Babylon and then in Egypt. And so it seems like this first party might be sort of a celebration for his victories thus far and also points ahead to his desire to do what his father didn't do, which was to conquer Greece. If you've watched the 300 or you've read about the Spartans, He's the king. And one of the things that may have happened during the six-month period and why all of the rulers and all of the generals and everything came in possibly was to plan a campaign against Greece. So, his wealth. These are essentially feasts to his ego because he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. And, you know, that's what the author of Esther wants you to hear. Now, this guy is so full of himself. He's having this party to show off everything that he has. It's all about him and his glory. Think about that for a moment. A six-month party. Now, we probably shouldn't think of it as everyone shows up and it's six months of partying and then everyone goes home. It was probably a, a party that lasted six months and based on their travel times, people kind of came and went. So it's not like the government of uh, the Persian Empire shut down for six months and uh, all went well. Okay, so people are kind of coming in. It's a, a rolling attendance, so to speak, at this great feast that he's throwing. But still, think of the magnitude of that. Throwing a state dinner that lasts six months. The 1% was living it up. And as if that wasn't enough, he then throws a week-long after-party in the words of, you know, in the, the, the frame of t framework of today. We're not sure what this was. It, some people have theorized it was a wedding feast, that uh, he got married to Vashti at this time. Um, that seems unlikely based on what happens and who they think Vashti was, but some people think it was a, a party of gratitude to the citadel for serving the rest of the empire well. So we're not exactly sure the nature of this after party, but we see that this after party continues with some of the details of the largesse and uh, lavishness and excess of these people. Well, the king. Because it talks about, you know, the, the kind of the marble that's there and the tapestries that are there that are all expensive and the unique goblets that are being served and the king just keeps serving out of the, the bounty of his wine for everybody. Keep drinking. And it just screams opulence, opulence, opulence. Corruption. Corruption. 
So we see that wicked rulers lavish the wealth of the people on themselves, because remember, that's tax dollars at work. We also see that wicked rulers multiply laws. We see here in the midst of this initially, this edict that is made, that there is to be no compulsion with regard to the drinking. Now that makes no sense to us usually, but typically what happened is you were supposed to drink when the king drank. So you only drank as much as the king drank, but you had to drink as much as the king drank. So if he was a heavy drinker, guess what you were that that six months or that one week? You were a heavy drinker. If he was lighter than you, you didn't drink as much as you wanted. You were limited in your capacity by the king. But here, because he's so merciful, he says, you can drink as much or as little as you want. What a good king he is. (laughs) Isn't he a good king? So he, he kind of throws out the, these new laws. And, and what you find generally is that wicked rulers multiply laws. That's what bureaucrats do. If you look at the EU, one of the reasons why, why Britain said goodbye was the multitude of laws, most of which were unenforceable because there were so many of them. And Ian Duguid, in his uh, commentary on this, notes... For instance, the laws about bananas that can be sold in the, in the EU. And they had to be of a certain size, and they had to be of a certain color, and they had to be of a certain uh, slope of angle with regard, you know, they've got to have the right bend in the banana. Okay? This is what wicked people do. I mean, there's not some guy out there measuring bananas in the, in the, in the United Kingdom or anything, but that's just, they just kind of law upon law upon law, just like we see in our country. Law upon law upon law, so that I don't think Nathan back there knows even 10% of the laws he's supposed to enforce. So, there's that. Now, one of the things that we see that goes on here is that Persian women often partook of the feast with their husbands unless unless it was expected that there was going to be drunkenness and debauchery. So the fact that there is a separate party for the women, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay? The men are engaged in drunkenness and debauchery, so they are separated from the women. The only women probably who came in would be concubines and people of such low economic status or or social status for the amusement and pleasure of the rich. And so what we see here is that drunken rulers do dumb things. It talks about how he is merry of heart. Code word. Drunk. And so he sends seven eunuchs. Seven. Seven. To gather the queen. Again, he's showing off his, his uh, richness and opulence in front of his friends. But it's interesting because it says, to bring her and the crown. To show off her beauty. And so, seen in the best possible light, now this is the best possible light, he is treating her like a trophy wife. Could be adored by all. 
And so he, he just wants her to show up and have the crown and, and uh, you know, do the rounds and maybe shake hands and have everyone go, what a beautiful woman she is. The king, he's a lucky guy. Many of the Jewish commentators, however, said that basically um, that's all she's wearing is the crown. That he wants her to be an exhibitionist for his pleasure and the pleasure of the drunken men in his company. Either way you slice it, it's dumb, it's destructive, it's evil. And it's rooted in part to his drunkenness. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is. We see the first person who was drunk was Noah. He's the first person we know of who cultivated vines for grapes. And Scripture notes in Genesis 9 that he got drunk and ended up naked in his tent, and we're not sure exactly what happened to him, but it wasn't good. Drunkenness often means that bad things happen to us because we're not in control. But we see this particular phrase, Mary of heart, in two places, both of which are in Samuel. The first one is in 1 Samuel 25, and the second one is 2 Samuel 13. The first has to do with Nabal, the anger-prone husband of Abigail. And it triggers the events that led to his demise. He would die a few days later after he was merry at heart. We see it as well in the life of Ammon, because his brother Absalom, his half-brother Absalom, told the men that he had hired to kill Ammon to wait until he was merry of heart, meaning he's now unable to defend himself, and kill him. So we see this phrase is usually connected with the downfall of somebody, and in some ways this is connected to the downfall, at least with the ego, of Xerxes. The scriptures warn in places like Proverbs 31 that kings are not to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink because then they can forget the law and pervert the rights of the afflicted. And so there's a warning against kings getting drunk precisely because of what they will do when they are drunk. Because their decisions affect a whole nation, not just a whole family or two. This is partly why we see in Ephesians 5 the warning, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the events here in Esther 1 are part of that warning that we find in Scripture against drunkenness, and I would be a bad pastor if I didn't mention that. So, I don't want to be a wicked pastor. We also see that wicked rulers lack wisdom. You see, here we have the most powerful man in the world, and he doesn't have a clue. He orders his wife to be brought in here for all of his drunken friends to enjoy in some way, shape, or form. He is lording it over his wife for his own ego. He is not loving her. He is loving himself. What he is doing here is not in keeping with covenant headship, Genesis 2, 
Ephesians 5, but what it is in, in keeping with is the curse of Genesis 3. When God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And here he is ruling over her as if she is a subject instead of a spouse. Not only is he ruling over her as a spouse, but also he's lording it over her as a loyal subject. Jesus notes that the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. They abuse power. And so he's abusing power over her as his wife and as a subject of the kingdom. And it doesn't quite go the way he wanted it to. For all of his edicts, all of his commands, he can't get his wife to listen to him. And for good reason. Because what he wants is wrong. And we see his folly again in that he doesn't know what to do. He's filled with rage because, you know, this was a, a honor-based society. And so he has lost face and he wants to regain face in front of all of these people. But he doesn't know what to do. And so what we discover really about Xerxes is he's not his own man. He's a sharp tool in someone else's hand. And whose hand will change throughout the course of the book of Esther. But that's all he is. And so he turns to the seven, once again seven, uh, you know, rulers, the princes, for wisdom. And here's the great wisdom Oh, we're afraid that our wives won't listen to us either. So we'd better, you know, because this, this word of this gets around, you see. So we better have an edict that goes around telling everyone not to do this. See how kind of weird that is? We don't want everyone to find out how rebellious she is. So we're going to tell everyone how rebellious she is, um, but punish her for it so that our wives will all listen to us. They're just as self-serving as he is. Okay. But God is using the wickedness of these people, as we're going to see next week, to put Esther in the place where she will be able to wield the king for the good of God's people. So wicked rulers are concerned only for their own glory and satisfaction at the people's expense. Thirdly, we see that God's anointed, or Messiah, serves His people to His glory. And perhaps I should put it this way, He serves them for their good and His glory. You see, Xerxes here serves as a negative type or negative example of Christ. He is, in a sense, an anti-Christ. He reveals to us what Jesus isn't. Because Jesus does not act, uh, work on the same framework that Xerxes does. And so we're going to quickly go through this. It's much shorter than when we, we talked about how bad Xerxes was. But Jesus, we see in Ephesians 4, lavishes gifts upon His people for their enjoyment as well as their service to Him. So Jesus is not sucking up the wealth of the nation. Jesus is dispossessing Himself. 
In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians 8, that we've got it in your order of worship for our, our offering, he who was rich made himself poor that he might enrich others. And so Jesus is diametrically opposed to Xerxes and the wicked leaders that we experience on a regular basis. We see also that Jesus fulfilled and removed the civil and ceremonial law for His people. Jesus did not keep adding law upon law upon law. But He fulfilled the ceremonial law, so we no longer offer sacrifices. We're no longer in a theocracy, so we're no longer under the penalties of the civil law that Israel was. But we are under the moral law for our good. But in part of this, we also see that Jesus does not banish us from His presence like Xerxes banished Vashti, but rather we see that He brings us into His presence because He has removed our guilt. He treats us according to grace while Xerxes is operating under a principle of law. And so Jesus is very different on that account. We see as well that while Xerxes is bringing in the rich and powerful to feast, the very ones that he doesn't need to feed, Jesus invites the poor and the humble to his wedding supper. He talks to those who have no money to come and to eat, come and to drink. Not only that, but this wedding supper that we read about in Revelation 19 is in order to honor His bride, not honor Himself by disgracing her, but to reveal how He has made her beautiful by His grace. And so we see that Jesus does not rule over His bride the way that Xerxes rules over Vashti, but rather Jesus serves His bride with sacrificial love. And He does this to make her holy and blameless, as we see in Ephesians 5. And so Jesus is a very different spouse than Xerxes is, just as He's a very different ruler than Xerxes is. And so when we live by faith, or we look with the eyes of faith, we see that Jesus is working in everything we see in order to accomplish His good purposes as it talks about in Romans 8. In all things, God works for those who love Him to bring good. And so while the thing itself might be less than good, the goal of God is to bring out good. So, as we begin to look at Esther, we should be surprised that God seems to be absent. But faith sees that God is at work, including raising up a wicked leader to chastise His people for their sin. This dangerous man is still under the control of God even as he pursues his own glory at the expense of the people. He perverts justice for his own self-indulgence 
But Xerxes also opens up a window for us to behold the glory of Jesus who seeks His glory and our good because of His sacrificial love. And so this book will in part remind us to long for the true King while we live under the tyranny of bad ones. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in many places of Scripture, we see Your people struggling under the rule of wicked men. And may we take encouragement from that, and that just as You sustained them, so You will sustain us no matter what happens in our country, in our place, in our time. So Father, free us from the fear that can so easily fill us. Father, give us, rather fill us with faith through the power of the Holy Spirit to know that whatever You ordain is right and to know that whatever You have ordained, You have intended good to eventually arise out of it. Help us to not trust in earthly kings but to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who is the seed of David. Jesus, who is the appointed Messiah. Jesus, who is our Savior. So Father, keep redirecting our eyes by the power of the Spirit, because we are so prone to look away. We are so prone to look at our circumstances and struggle, as opposed to see those as the opportunity we need to make or take advantage of to look to Jesus. And so teach us through the book of Esther that you are a faithful God, even though we can't always see it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.